0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, the Internet of Dangerous Things is arriving, but what about all that hardware we just can't seem to take care of right now? We'll discuss plus the details on critical updates from Adobe, the surprising number of gas stations that are vulnerable to attack from the Internet, your questions, our answers, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 199 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on January 29th, if you can believe it, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, why, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine. Over at scaleengine.com. Just go check it out and see what I've been talking about. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris,
1: everybody. Thanks for watching.
0: Hello, sir. Oh, and I see the Tetris form (laughs) behind you takes another shape. I like it. I like it, Alan. We've got a big show this week, and I I believe our first story is sort of one of these where last week we mentioned a little bit of it. Hey, here's a problem. It's not totally fixed yet. And now this week we've got more information.
1: Yeah. Uh, So last week we told you, you know, there is uh, um, the Angular exploit kit was out in the wild and it was exploiting three flash vulnerabilities, one back from November, Hmm. one uh, that Adobe had patched on last Thursday, uh, basically a couple hours before the show aired, and then uh, one which they hadn't actually identified yet. Nobody was quite sure exactly how they were doing it, but they were exploiting flash player. So it was a zero day vulnerability. The attackers had it and were using it and there was no fix. Right. Uh, I, I think at that point Adobe didn't even know exactly what the problem was yet uh, so uh, as an update on that story as it developed over the week on the 22nd Adobe released an emergency patch for Flash Player uh, to resolve one of the two zero-day vulnerabilities uh, and that was the 22nd and that was their uh, second advisory of uh, 2015 and then it turns out that that fix didn't completely close the vulnerability oh. and the exploit quick- quickly adapted and worked around the fix in order to continue to exploit the vulnerability So uh, (laughs) Adobe issued a security bulletin, which is not the same as an advisory. Okay. So the security advisories, or sorry, they had issued an advisory, which is different than a bulletin, right? A bulletin is, here's this information with the fix, whereas an advisory is just, here's some information. Uh, So the advisory came out on the 24th saying, (laughs) uh, hey, you know, we know that that our last fix wasn't good enough, and uh, make sure you get the new fix. And basically, they said it's uh, out there and going through uh, the automatic update process, but um, the they didn't have a manual download out
0: for it yet. So the only way you could get the fix is if you auto update. So if you don't, uh, or waited auto-update. for
1: the download, which was uh, came along a couple of days later.
0: Well, that's lovely. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. As long as it's all, I mean, we're getting, I guess, we're get, are, do we have a luxury now where we're saying, like, oh, a few days, that's not good enough? I mean, that's, that's not too bad. Yeah,
1: uh, you know, they have to do more testing or whatever. Uh, and then the other thing is, you know, trying to coordinate to get uh, updates pushed with Chrome and Internet Explorer where they bundle it. Uh, because they were doing so many updates in rapid succession, it wasn't, you know, their usual process of, hey, Chrome, we have an update coming out next week. Here's the version and get ready to push it on mm-hmm. this day or whatever, mm-hmm. right? mm mm-hmm. Uh, it was more like, oh, it's, uh, you know, we need these out ASAP. And so, you know, we had to break the release cycle for Chrome even and, and force Chrome to push an update when they weren't expecting to and so on.
0: It's a big one then. That's how you know yeah. it's big, right?
1: Yeah. And then uh, finally, uh, on the 27th, which is uh, <laughs> what, Wednesday, uh, Tuesday, uh, mm-hmm. Adobe released Flash Player sixteen point zero zero two nine six. Uh, Which fixes two new CVEs, uh, 13.11 and 13.12, or or, sorry, 0.3.11 and 0.3.12, Mm -hmm. um, that are the zero-day that uh, we identified last week that they weren't sure what it was, and the second vulnerability they found, which is a double-free. And so... Now we have fixes for all the known vulnerabilities.
0: Very good. All right. Uh, so that's in the movement. meantime,
1: uh, the researcher who uh, found the zero day yeah. being used mm-hmm. says he's. Uh, I discovered the exploit being used in the wild in a different way, mm. not by the ex- uh, the Angler exploit kit. So at least uh, it's not only the Angler people that knew about this at this point. Uh, so he found this site, uh, some uh, adult sites using it or having it injected on their pages. <laughs> oh jeez. Uh, you know, in the ads or whatever, so it wasn't likely the adult sites purposely doing it. It was more that their ad network was pushing junk, um, where it would pop up saying, oh, you know, we're the U.S. ice and you're banned and pay us money to get unbanned or something like that. <laughs> One of those type of scams or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but And they were also using the Flash exploit to infect people's computers and so on. Uh, And then FireEye also discovered being used independently as well. So they have their research uh, I linked to as well. I saw you just showing that in the Mm -hmm, stream.
0: mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. Uh, So make sure you have uh, the Flash update because there's been a bunch of them at this point.
0: Yeah, gosh, no kidding. And, you know, there's been a renewed debate around Flash's usefulness because YouTube just sort of officially turned the switch on to HTML5 by default. On YouTube Instead this of week. Flash by default. So yeah.
1: if, if it detects that your browser will support it, it'll try to do HTML5 first, mm-hmm. uh, which is some help, but I don't know how big of a difference. I've has also,
0: here. you know, I've heard more and more conversations about people that say they, you know, when they're using Firefox and other browsers, they just don't use Flash. And if they need Flash, they launch Chrome. Sure, but it it's not any more securing right. chrome, i like obviously. but what i no. except for chrome has some sandboxing but what i like about that is and it's not on the system you know it's not like system-wide flash like well but flash well a it, it
1: is right if you're using windows it's already there uh, as part of internet explorer which you can't get rid of
0: so does it actually does it ship with flash
1: Yes, Internet Explorer oh. bundles Flash in the same way that oh. Chrome does See, in
0: newer versions. I wasn't even in the thinking older versions, of Windows when I said that, to be honest. I was actually thinking more of, of Linux desktops, but uh, yeah, that makes Okay, I mean, that makes sense. That, yeah, I guess it would be included in IE, wouldn't it?
1: Yeah, well, so older versions of IE had it installed system-wide, but only IE used it. Uh, but the problem there is, you know, any apps that embed a browser often use IE mm-hmm. or, you know, things like that. And then in the newer versions of IE, they bundle it in the same way that Chrome does, but, you know, the updates come with through Windows Update or whatever, so they're not when you launch your browser, it checks hmm. for an update. Hmm. It's, you know, when that happens, so there might be slightly more delay there. And then you end up... Uh, so now you can, on a Windows machine, you can actually end up with three versions of Flash. Yeah. The IE version, the Firefox version. And the or, Chrome. Sorry. Firefox version is the plug-in version. So mm. it actually shared between Firefox, Opera, and any other plug-in-based browser. Yeah. And then your Chrome version. Right. So you can actually end up with three versions of Flash. I'm trying to make sure all those are up to date. can be a little bit of a pain. Yeah. But in general... You know, running Chrome isn't necessarily any more secure than running it in Firefox. No,
0: with these in, in, and specifically, and I don't do this because I like to have Flash in Steam and in in Firefox too, but specifically these were Linux users that would do this. And then they, okay. the other reason because it's just kind of a pain in the ass to get Flash on Linux too.
1: There's that too. Uh, is it? Uh, sometimes. Like, I've only done it on BSD, and we have a part. In it, it depends. Updates. Like,
0: some people just have some distributions just have it in the package repo, and some don't. Right. So, it kind of. Depends yeah. On the and if, as long as they have
1: it in the package <coughs> repo and they update it every time there's an advisory, then right. it's usually if just you, if they you know, they do. snappy, stampy. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. So, but I guess the biggest thing is that certain things like live video streaming just can't be done in HTML5. Yeah.
0: So that requires Flash, doesn't it?
1: <clears throat> I don't know if it'll be possible to do something <laughs> with WebRTC in the future yeah. or what, but the problem there is, you know, your basic browser doesn't have a MP4 decoder, right? Right, like uh, on a phone you do because the phone, like Android or, or or iOS, provide it and and pay the license fee, but for a browser on your desktop you can't. People in the chat room are trying to tell me it's not true, but. <laughs> it's, I do this for a living <laughs> there's no such thing as HTML5 live video
0: I love it when they argue well they'll say it'll happen eventually yeah eventually well, that's, they don't understand the technology behind it infinite, on an infinite time uh, infinite time scale eventually will work out yeah, uh,
1: yeah. So, so there's WebRTC but that's person to person it's not the same thing right, right. and uh, WebRTC <clears throat> is not HTML5 it's WebRTC different things Right? It's like it's like trying to say that I don't know, Java is HTML because you embed it in an HTML page.
0: Hmm. Or hmm. something.
1: Right? WebRTC is a completely different
0: technology than HTML five. Well, yeah. I mean I think they don't I mean you're arguing with people that don't know that how the technology works right now. Because they're saying well, it's gonna work at some point. Uh, and I suppose if you put it on a timescale like that, yes, yes, eventually it will work.
1: YouTube is video on demand, right? You can just point an MP4 file at your browser and it plays. That's not the same thing as live streaming. Right. Right. All right. YouTube said they switched the default for YouTube stuff, not for YouTube live. That's not the same thing.
0: That's still using Flash. Yes, as far as I know. Yeah, no, I think it is. Well at least yeah. the one Which I not watched really another good way to do it. The one I watched last supports. night was why it was still using Flash, at least. Exactly. <clears throat> okay. So uh Anything else on the Flash story? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. Okay, good. Well, then I'll tell you about something that gets me fired up. That's Ting. Been Ting Uh customer for two years. TechSnap.Ting.com. Go there. TechSnap.Ting.com. Take $25 off your first device. If you've already got a Ting-compatible device, They're just going to give you a $25 service credit, which might pay for your first month. It did for me. Uh, So what is Ting? You've probably heard the name by now if you've listened for a little while. It really is truly mobile that makes sense. It's no contract wireless, and you just pay for what you use. Ting takes your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes, and they add them all up, whatever bucket you fall into. That's what you end up having to pay. But what's really cool about Ting is they're a cell phone company that's sort of structured a little bit differently than the rest of the telco providers. Their incentive structure is for you to be happy, and it sounds kind of cheesy and cliche to say that, but think about how the existing wireless model is set up, like for your Verizons and your AT&Ts out there, right? They get you to get into these two-year contracts. They sell you a device super cheap as kind of a gimmick givey to kind of get you to get in on that contract to kind of trick you into doing it. And then their idea is to kind of lock you in and monetize you. And they're hoping you're going to get swayed by new flashy stuff that maybe you'll even re-up that contract before it expires. And God forbid, if you want to get out of that contract, well, then you're going to have to pay a big fee. In fact, that's one of the reasons why Ting's like, you know what, we're going to try to get the industry away from that. We're going to launch an early termination relief program. And now what are they going to do? You want to make a contract? you want to make somebody have to pay a bunch of money? Well, then we're just going to respond in a competitive way and help people pay that. You can find out more about Ting's ETF program on their website, techsnap.ting.com. That's where you go. Go check them out. The reason why Ting is different, they run on top of another wireless carrier. They don't have to go out and actually spend the billions, yet literally billions on the cell phone towers. They're renting that space out. The less you have to end up paying, the less they end up having to pay. Their incentives are lined up with your incentives as a customer, and that's why their system works so well. Ting's been able to carve out a good, respectable market here because they've got incredible customer service. No-hold customer service. You call them at one eight five five ting ftw anytime between 8 a.m. or 8 p.m., and a real human being answers the phone. That's a, that's a different Right there, that nobody else can touch. Yeah. They're backed by two cows. Two cows is a great company. They're also really it serious. Been around about, on the internet since before they know most how it works, us. right? They know how it works. They get it. That's why they're. That's why all of their websites use great standards. The backends work on all kinds of devices. They, you don't have to have Flash in order to see all of the live dashboard stats. It's really cool stuff because they get all of that. Then they combine it with the customer service and the great devices and the cool plans. It's a flat six dollars. You only pay for your usage. You want Wi-Fi hotspot tethering? You just check the box in your Android OS. You got it. You want to use Windows Phone? They got it. You want to use iOS? They got it. It's a really cool system. And the website to manage it all is awesome. It really is great. Go over to techsnap.ting.com to get started. I've saved over, I think it's about $2,200. You can go over to their savings calculator, plug that in, put your existing usage into that, and see what kind of savings you'd have over the life of what your current contract is, and then factor in the fact that they can help you cancel that. And get ready because Ting is rolling out GSM soon, so you're going to have CDMA and GSM. You can already buy the Ting Sims. And one last thing while you're over on the Ting site, check out, if you're a Google Plus user, check out their blog. turns out Google Plus, the Android app or the iOS app, can be kind of a big source of data usage. And uh, they have a few tips where you can uh, go in there and lean that up so that way it uh, is a little bit more of a, a good citizen when you're on cellular techsnap.ting.com and a huge thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. You guys rock and uh, I love my Nexus 5, my HTC One, and my iPhone 5 on the Ting network. techsnap.ting.com Okay, Alan, our next story takes us down the path of gas tank explosions? Like, what's going on here? (laughs) explosions. I wanted to make it big, Alan. Make it drama.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, um, Based on a survey H.D. Moore did with his uh, project Sonar, uh, out of an estimated 150,000 gas stations that there are, uh, including private ones, uh, at, in the U.S., about 5,000 of them have their uh, automated tank gauging system. So there's a, a system that goes in the gas tank and tells how full it is and you know if it's suddenly draining faster than it should because there's a leak or and lots of different things and basically monitor the tank and uh, send out alerts if weird things happen and whatever. Right. Um, well, some of these are incorrectly connected to the internet. Oh, so what? Surprise, surprise. He found, surprise, surprise. Five, he found five, over 5,000 of them that he could get into without a password. So an attacker with access to the serial port interface of an ATG may be able to shut down the station by spoofing the reported fuel level. So say that there's no gas left and the station won't sell any gas. Uh, generate false alarms by saying, oh, there's a leak, or or suppress one and saying there's not when there is the, or, uh Or locking the monitoring system uh, out. So just changing all the passwords and, and locking it down, and now the monitoring system that's supposed to tell you how much gas is yeah. in your tank Lovely. can't connect.
0: Right, right.
1: Uh, the tank gauge uh, malfunctions are considered a serious issue uh, due to the regulatory and safety issues that may apply. Wow. Right? If, if you know, there are laws that say you have to monitor for leaks and so on. And if you get locked out, then you're not in compliance. <laughs>
0: you're not in compliance with the regulations, yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, there's safety, you know, they're supposed to be, you know, uh, making sure that these things don't explode or leak or cause, in, uh, you know, environmental damage and so on. So while doing the research, HD uh, Moore found that there are about uh, 5,800 uh, gas tank gauges that are connected to the internet and have no authentication. Uh, generally, these devices only have a serial port, and they're meant to be managed locally, like over uh, physically connecting to them with like a console or uh, maybe over a LAN. Uh, but some people are taking these uh, serial server devices, like uh, the ones from like Lantronics or whatever, they're meant, you know, you hook it up to a server so you can connect to it out of band somehow to, to manage it. Uh, well, they're hooking these up and then just slapping them on the internet with no passwords and no authentication at all.
0: What could go wrong, Alan?
1: Yeah. Uh, so, quoting here, uh, approximately 5,800 automated tank gauges were found to be exposed to the internet without a password. Over 5,300 of those were located in the United States, which works out to be about 3% of all the gas stations in mm. the country. Mm. Wow. Uh, some of the devices do have a TCP/IP interface, but those that don't, you can just connect, uh, one, you know, a, a serial server, Landtronic's, or whatever, uh, and then connect them to the internet. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty common thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing is, most of these serial servers do offer the ability to require a password or something, but they don't by default, right? If you're connecting to the serial server uh, or the serial port on a server, it's going to ask you for like the root password when you get to it, right? Uh, so the device itself doesn't need to necessarily provide authentication. Although most of them can, it's just not on by default and most people don't go around turning it on. Uh, and the other problem is, you know, these are meant for you to manage your servers over your LAN, not to point them directly to the internet. Right? Uh, so, more quoting again says uh, operators should consider using a VPN gateway or other dedicated hardware interface to connect their ATGs to their monitoring service yeah but not like right? targeted don't just yeah don't just slap it on the internet you need to put it on a VPN and make sure you can only connect to it that way yeah um, and and that way you know you're not having random people poking at your gas tank and causing you problems
0: hmm
1: it says uh, less secure alternatives include applying source IP address filters or setting a password for each serial port the problem is a lot of these, you know, only take a password up to so many characters. You're transmitting all this in plain text because usually like telnet or whatever, or just raw TCP/IP. So it's much better to actually have, uh, you know, using a VPN and, and having encryption and so on.
0: Right, right. <laughs> uh,
1: so uh, why gas you know, stations? We bring this up. Uh, another, ex- this is just another example of taking devices that weren't meant to be put on the internet and then just yeah. exposed them to the internet by buying the adapter. And just doing it. It's like, well, they really weren't meant for that. They don't have strong authentication. Most of these, if they do support some kind of password thing, they just have a password. Not usernames and passwords so individual people can have access with different levels. It's just a password, a couple of characters, you type it in, and you have full control over the machine,
0: and you know when I when I see this, I think what probably drives this in a lot of cases is remote management. And gas stations perfect for it because you want to make it a lean operation. Maybe only one attendant has to work at the gas station, and but he's not a computer guy, right? And there's more and more technology, so you have to be able to scale that, and you have to be able to do it in an economical but way. How hard is that to do a VPN back? All of them
1: have a VPN initiator that goes back to the central location, and now you have. You're perfectly working yeah, well, private why, network, and nobody else can get into it.
0: Why wouldn't that just be the default? Why wouldn't, like, it's 2000, like, even if it's, like, the year 2002 and you're doing this,
1: like, yeah, why wouldn't that the be the default? Thing, yes, the bigger problem is, is why do these gas tank devices only have a serial yeah. port and not, but, you know, I don't trust the vendor of the gas tank device to do the IP interface with authentication, well, know, yeah, if, they, that. if they did support SSL, it would probably yeah. be SSL v3 only, and it would have a self-signed certificate you couldn't change, and they would all ship with the same default private key, and nobody would change them. <laughs> so I would want you to have to use a VPN. I, you know, I, I, The whole point, they purposely only put a serial port on it because it wasn't meant for the internet. Right. And then people <laughs> yes. are just buying a, a serial server and slapping it on there and not yeah, considering the yeah. implications.
0: Yeah, if they, if they meant for it to go on the internet, it would have an Ethernet port.
1: Yes. <laughs> but even then I, I i still wouldn't i'd rather do it myself rather than expose oh, yeah. their interface yeah. to the internet
0: yeah for sure yeah
1: cuz i want something that i can update you know and change the rules on
0: it's got to be you can't do that it's got to be somewhere plans. like a breakdown somewhere where the person that is implementing the technology or deploying these devices like somewhere in the chain there has to be a breakdown here and it i uh, and i it seems excusable Ten? No, not even ten years ago. Like this has been a, this is, we've, a decade now where we've known better, right? This is this isn't 1983 where we're like discovering about the concept of connecting computers together. Like this is this is kind of inexcusable in a way. And and I I almost I almost feel like the response should be not okay. Let's get a bunch of legislation and a bunch of law enforcement and let's get make sure that cyber is our number one priority. The response should be the companies that are negligent should be held accountable for that negligence. And that seems like the appropriate response, not let's band-aid the situation with extra cyber defenses and extra cyber legislation and information sharing. That doesn't seem like that solves the problem because at the end of the day you can do all of those things and still have gas stations connected directly to the internet. And you haven't stopped. You haven't solved that problem at all. And you're not. You're still not holding those account. Those companies accountable. In fact, they just share information if they get attacked, and they're good. So, and so Box, Alan, yeah. Any other uh, thoughts on this story? Great, uh, great link to uh, The one over at uh, Rapid Seven with the uh, pie chart breakdown.
1: Yeah, uh, they show where they found the gas stations, what ISPs the gas stations use, because a lot of them are just like using. Some of them are like connected with like a verizon 3g connection because they're in a remote location or whatever and that's fine but you still need to do security
0: yeah yeah uh well alan Mm. this is good to bring to our attention it seems almost like though they use they're choosing gas stations uh to to kind of like make you afraid to like raise awareness to like oh gas stations oh what basically he was just the the
1: hd moore's project was literally just scanning ports and they found hey We found a whole bunch of machines on port 1001 that just log you into a serial interface to some device. What is it? Oh, it's a gas station controller.
0: (laughs) Oh, surprise, surprise. I remember this one time I was doing a uh, network penetration testing, and it was going pretty good. Like, I'd managed to compromise their IIS box, but that was not unusual. But you managed to put a file on the administrator's desktop. But again, that wasn't too unusual. But what was crazy unusual is usually I didn't have such an easy time of getting into the dictation system that all of the doctors use. They would call in and dictate and then these would be recorded to WAV files and then these wave files would be sent to like these, these, these teams of people who would type them up. And it was all being done over FTP – and it was this in-house system that they had designed at some point that I just kind of stumbled across. And the, like, the username was FTP and the password was FTP. And I got access to all of the doctor's notes transcriptions, all the recordings right there. Like, I was able to just, like, snapshot all of that. And uh, it, it shows you, like, sometimes when people design this stuff, I, I, maybe they only design it, they, like, they think it's only ever going to be on a LAN or what it is. And then, you know, somebody comes along 10 years later and connects it to the Internet. Yep. All right, Alan. Any other uh, thoughts? On that me, there was a video or a
1: presentation at EuroBSDCon this year or last year in Bulgaria, uh, talking of talking about um, the guy works at uh, University of Oslo in, in Norway in like information security, and his job was they, we have all this medical data, and we need to expose parts of it to the researchers so that they can be like you know anonymously access chunks of data about the patients uh, to do research <laughs> and stuff, but not be able to get. The information specific about any specific patient, and so on, and make sure that they could never extract data from the system, so they couldn't just you know steal patient data and so on. And he gave a talk about uh, how he built the system so that people could have access to only the data they were uh, explicitly needing to have access to, right. and not be able to export
0: it. Uh, well. We continue on, Alan. We continue on. Uh, well, this would probably be a good spot for me to mention DigitalOcean, the great folks over at DigitalOcean, another great sponsor of the tech. Now, so we have we have the best sponsors on this show. I really love DigitalOcean. It's a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. You go over there, you get root access like a mouse you know you go over there you can make sure it's on your own rig and it can be a free BSD system now they just recently introduced free BSD support they call them droplets these are your virtual instances that you get full root access over HTML5 consoles you can watch it from post all the way right up to boot I really love that for troubleshooting they have a great snapshot and management backup system Uh, and the best part is really you can get started in no time I got a tweet today I think somebody got their digital ocean droplets spun up in 36 seconds but under a minute you're going to get started and pricing plans start only $5 a month it's going to get you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and a. I mean, I just love their new London data center because they were posting pictures as they created it. They're all gorgeous. In fact, they have, I shouldn't even give you the impression, they have multiple data centers in these cities too, which is really cool. You can get some serious diversity. They do private networking when you're in the same data centers, which doesn't account against your transfer. This is really That's great if you, nice yeah, you
1: back-end replication, right? backups, and
0: Super nice for that. Or a back end database. Or uh, I've even heard from uh, some folks that are building, they're, they're experimenting now that you can do FreeBSD on droplets to converting that into sort of like a NAS esque kind of rig and using that as the back end NFS and a droplet to their front end web servers. Yep, And they're using private networking to do it and it's not going against their bill at all. And they're starting at $5 a month. But if you use our promo code SNAPOcean, snap ocean that's one word snap ocean they give you a ten dollar credit you can try out the five dollar rig two months for free snap ocean that's a really great way to go and it's you know you go just try out their control panel it's crazy intuitive really powerful and you can replicate it with their straightforward API, any of the functionality or take advantage of the stuff the community has written. Core OS, Ubuntu LTS. They got all the best distributions. They got free BSD. It's a really great opportunity to go try something out for absolutely free. Snap Ocean, no credit card required. $10 credit throughout the $5 rig, two months for free. $5 rig you get root access to with crazy fast SSD drives. Tier one bandwidth. It's really fun. I When I did it, I was like, oh, I should have done this a long time ago. DigitalOcean.com, SnapOcean. When you check out SnapOcean, $10 credit. Thanks, DigitalOcean, for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Whoop, whoop. Okay, on the TechSnap train. That's what that, that was. That <laughs> yes. You like that? Yeah, is a little sure. Little. So the Internet of Things is a big topic post-CES. Everybody's talking about it. Uh, Samsung's been making some big plays. Apple's got their thing. Google's got their thing. Uh, and I'm just sitting here like, maybe we could figure out how to update the firmwares on all of the routers that we have before we put firmwares on everything from light bulbs to our refrigerators. That's kind just me.
1: Yes. And so uh, Krebs has the article, uh, the Internet of Dangerous Things. <laughs> Uh, so Krebs starts talking a bit about the trends in distributed denial of service attacks. Uh, so he has a bunch of data from Arbor Networks uh, and their subsidiary Prolexic, which is a company that you can hire to sit in front of your website and cleanse the traffic and keep oh, your okay. website under denial of service attacks. Oh, that sounds fancy. Uh, yeah, uh, I cited them in my uh, paper I gave at uh, EuroBSDCon 2013 So you're well. you're impressed? By what?
0: By their work? It's not
1: like... No, they, they just have lots of research because they sit there getting attacked all day, every day. Yeah. So they have numbers.
0: Yeah, in. okay, gotcha.
1: Uh, but anyway, so Krebs uh, is using Prolexic to protect his site because it's been under constant attack. Uh, like he, There wasn't a day in December where he wasn't being of service attacked, and there were 21 separate incidents, some of them lasting multiple days. Uh, and so he's got some graphs and stuff, but... Uh, the point uh, needs to be raised that a growing number of these attacks are sourced from the Internet of Things type devices, right? Small consumer devices with an embedded operating system that never receives updates.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, right? Alan. It ships with
1: X version of Linux when it comes out of the shop. And it never gets updated. Is, and oh, look, they all have that ghost vulnerability now.
0: This is a problem. And, and the reason why I think we need to be serious about this with the Internet of Things is this is a problem that we still have not solved, that we've only made worse as time has gone on, even though we've all known about it for a while now. And I mm-hmm. just ordered a brand new couch. And I guarantee you the next couch I buy is going to have an Internet of Things. It's going to have an Ethernet port. It's going to have Wi-Fi. My couch is going to have a firmware on I'm going to have to update. they yeah. have got to solve this. Well, and the worst
1: you know, some of these are old enough where they, they have the NTP vulnerability from a, over a year ago, and they have all these problems. And they can just, once they're exposed to the internet, that's game over, right? So we saw the attacks against Sony and Microsoft over Christmas use exploited routers, uh, but a growing number of other devices uh, could be vulnerable, right? Especially in light of things like the sure. Linux ghost vulnerability, meaning yep. that the OS and every embedded Linux device is now vulnerable. <laughs> Uh, and we've seen viruses attacking NASAs, right? We saw that Synology and uh, mm-hmm. one of the other NASAs getting Doing attacked the crypto-currency by cryptocurrency
0: like, encryption, crypto locker yep. things,
1: and yep. And you know, I'm sure it won't be very long before we see the first attack against a set-top box, like a Boxy or a Roku. Right, the, yeah. a device that you don't think about as being a, a
0: security vector necessarily. Right. Yeah, or a smart TV could just be a yep. could be like a yeah, it could just be the smart TV. Because you know, if anybody's going to blow it on these updates, it's going to be like your Samsungs or your LGs, where they're going to have a, like a 2011 model smart TV that they just stop updating in now 2015. Those ones, some of the smart TVs actually receive updates. Right. No, I know they do, but at some point they're going to stop. Right. They're not going to update right. them forever. Yeah, they're going to. Like, oh yeah, your TV's still right. by new. But people use TVs for like ten yeah. plus years sometimes. Yeah.
1: Uh, So, uh, as Arbor Networks notes, uh, some of the biggest attacks take advantage of internet based hardware, uh, everything from gaming consoles to routers and modems that ship with networking features that can easily be abused for attacks uh, and that are turned on by default. Uh, Perhaps fittingly, the largest attack to hit uh, Krebs' site in the past four months is known as SSDP. Uh, That's the Simple Service Discovery Protocol. And basically, by pounding routers with it, they reflect into a bigger. So, you know, you, you send such and such amount of bandwidth out. Uh, to an inf- uh, vulnerable machine and it ends up sending even more bandwidth back to the origin uh, to the target of the attack. So by, you know, you have this amplification effect. Right? Right where you can you can send us uh, you can, you know, you're only able to send this big of a denial of service, but if you bounce it off all these other people, they'll make it each one of those streams bigger for you. Mm-hmm. So SSDP is a component of UPnP, which we've also found problems with before. <laughs> And that's the standard that lets network devices, like your gaming console, ask your router to open up ports to the internet for them. And you know we've also talked about some routers where it was accidentally exposed to the internet side, so someone on the internet side could ask for these ports to be opened up for them. And then all of a sudden, that Roku device that normally only connects out and is doesn't have to worry about security because nobody can connect, can connect into it, Right. well now somebody from outside can ask the firewall to open a port and they can drill through and hit your Roku or whatever so yeah Um, so Arbor Networks has found that attackers continues to use reflection and amplification techniques to create gigantic attacks you know no matter how big your botnet is if you can amplify it that's bigger Uh, you know it's been over a year since the those amplification attacks with you know NTP and what was Uh, DNS uh, have been found and, and kind of patched but there's still lots of systems out there that are being exploited to perform these attacks oh yeah and at some point the upstream ISPs have to just Turn them off, and I think it's the only way it's going to get fixed.
0: Boy, there's going to be a lot of cries. Like, can you imagine? Like, so let's just let's run with that for a, for a second here. It's going to be probably Comcast because they're one of the largest ISPs in the United yeah, States. Yeah, I'm not
1: talking about end home users though. I'm like talking about places that have servers with like gigabit connections that are being used for this. Like, that would be as much,
0: of that I don't think would be as big of an outcry. But when you look That'd at like an
1: outcry, but it probably make a bigger difference.
0: Yeah. Well, so would it if it's things like. Uh, if is it, it do you think that the majority of botnet computers are made up of home computers that have been compromised well the, the
1: botnets are made up of of home computers although the the reflection specifically dns servers that are reflecting
0: probably aren't yeah. mostly home connected right yeah right dns specifically probably ntp too right that's yeah yeah,
1: yeah. those are more uh, yeah. although a lot of times those little home routers have it and they're yeah. exposing it to the internet when they shouldn't be yeah uh, so specifically the open resolver project which is a group out there specifically trying to hunt down and beg people to fix these. <laughs> uh, they track devices that can be abused to help launch online attacks and, you know, complain to the ISPs saying, hey, could you please tell this person to fix their bloody device? Uh, they found that there are more than 28 million internet-connected devices that attackers can abuse uh, and to completely anonymously, anonymously attack people. Holy crap. Because right, you just... Because it's UDP, you can spoof the from address because with with TCP, because of the three-way handshake, if you fake the from address, the third part of the handshake goes back to the wrong person who didn't ask for it and so ignores it and so you can never establish a connection. But with UDP, you can say, hey, I'm I'm actually Chris and I'm going to ask this DNS server this very short question that has a very long answer and then the server is just going to send that very long answer to Chris. Mm -hmm. And if people do that often enough and quickly enough, then that's a denial of service attack. Um, and there's still 28 million of these that need patching.
0: I'm like, did you and see they have I a heat know. map? Did you see this?
1: Did you see this? Uh, well, I didn't know they had a heat map.
0: Yeah, it's kind of hard to understand, but they have a. The Open Resolver project has this heat map here that I'm, I'm trying to grok right now.
1: Oh, okay. So it's not on the map so much as done by uh, who owns the IP space. Yeah. And I, I noticed there was a lot in there pointing at. Um, like the U.S. government, even.
0: <laughs> huh. <laughs> you don't say.
1: Yeah. Uh, so uh, the other thing that uh, from the report here mm-hmm. is, um, according to Arbor Networks, the top three motivations behind attack remain uh, nihilistic vandalism, so mm. just being a booger, yeah, them uh, off online gaming, and then ideological hacktivism, all of which uh, the company said has been the top three for the past uh, couple of years. Uh, interestingly, when Krebs analyzed the data from that that dump of the Lizard Stressor database, the yeah. uh, Lizard, lizard uh, service Squad service that he launched for that, yeah, uh, he found that one of the most popular targets for the attacks that people were paying for were actually other people's small personal Minecraft servers. So
0: Minecraft servers? Off, Why yeah, knocking people, off
1: other people's Minecraft servers just to be a dick? Oh, or oh, I got banned from that Minecraft server, so I'm going to take it down. Retaliation
0: so can and stuff like yeah. that—just dick yeah. stuff, troll yeah. stuff.
1: Yeah. yeah. Go and, figure. And so th- those are often small denial of service attacks because your little Minecraft server is not going to have a fat <laughs> connection necessarily, right? You does not need to a lot. you know, even if you're playing games and they're just targeting individual players and knocking them offline so that, you know, oh, that guy's beating me at this game. So how about I just disconnect him and then I'll win? Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Or whatever, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh and so Krebs ended his article with uh, a quote that I loved and kind of agree with. It's kind of what you were saying at the beginning here. Uh, tech pundits and Cassandras all over the world uh, will wring their hands and opine about the coming threat of the so-called Internet of Things, the possible security issues introduced by the proliferation of network-ware devices like your couch or fitness trackers <laughs> and interconnected uh, internet-connected What about my uh, couch, Alan? What about your refrigerator? What about, about my, my
0: refrigerator, about. Alan?
1: But then Krebs says, but from where I sit, the real threat is the Internet of Things we already have that need fixing today.
0: Yeah, no kidding, right?
1: Yeah, let's not worry about all these other devices we're going to come up with and screw up the Internet. Right. Let's worry about how we've already screwed up what we already have, and let's get that fixed. And maybe we'll learn lessons that we can apply to these new Internet of Things devices. I I already know the manufacturer's
0: logic. Oh, don't worry about the stuff we've already sold you. Just buy new stuff. Don't worry about that stuff. Get new stuff. Yeah, but the new stuff isn't any more secure. No, no, it's not.
1: You know, like we saw that um, when HG Moore did his survey of the UPMP stuff, we found devices still shipping like eight-year-old versions of the... Uh, mini UPNP, like the super
0: draft spec version,
1: like yeah, the, the super the, yeah. This, like super <laughs> yeah. beta version, yeah. because that's what they built their software on, and yeah. they're not going to hire software like, engineers to rebuild their their software. I no, think we it, just keep shipping the like old Like with
0: UPNP, it was it was as bad as zero point
1: eleven, like, like, or something. And, and in the source code, four. like
0: it actually says, "Don't use this. This is a this is an example or something like yeah, that." Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty. And I know once we make a mess, it never goes away. This stuff does just stays in production forever. Alan, any other thoughts on that story?
1: Uh, nope.
0: All right. Well, I'll tell you about something I've got some thoughts on. That's IX Systems. Head over to iXSystems.com slash techsnap. Alan, uh, you remember uh, Wimpy from uh, the uh, Linux Unplugged podcast? He's on there from time to time.
1: A little bit,
0: yeah. The place he works for has been buying those super IX Systems rigs, the ones that they built for the FreeBSD Foundation a while back. Oh, nice. Yeah, they've been. I, he says a, a ton of them is what he said. He says they've been buying a whole bunch of them, and and Wimpy's been in the industry just like you and I have for a long time. And he says he's never had a better experience than anybody with IX Systems. He literally says yeah, just, he will never shop anywhere else now.
1: I know. I I, I used to build the servers myself because I figured that nobody else could do it as cheap as just buying the parts and putting it together myself and so on. But there was always so much headache in making sure, oh, well, you know, I bought the very first ZFS server I built, I bought the wrong <laughs> kind of controller. I an mean, that said it a, would work. You're a busy And it guy. was a controller, and I didn't want it. And, you're busy, Alan. You, you it, don't it was need. very stressful trying to worry. It's like, all right, I have to buy all the right stuff and make sure it's all going to work. And, you know, you're reading through all this documentation that the manufacturers have, and it's of course. very vague. Mind-numbing. It, was, it claims it supports FreeBSD, but it only supports FreeBSD 8, and you want to use 9. And it was just like, ah yeah. Yeah, and I just the next time I just called IX and I'm yeah. like oh no here you go over
0: to ixsystems slash techsnap you get that white glove experience check out their rigs powered by those Intel Xeon processors servers built to quality standards like you've never seen before they burn in tests before they ship them out so if you're sending them directly to a data center you're not gonna have any surprises and the great and thing the about thing.
1: they just they're built to support that idea like nowhere else where I like when I bought stuff from Newegg they they couldn't even understand that I wanted to ship it to my house not to my business partner's house because his was the address on the credit card right yeah let alone I want to ship it to a data center and I need to make sure you specify on the the documents that FedEx needs to call me and bill me for the customs fees because the data center is not going to pay the import taxes <laughs> no, on kidding. my yeah. server. Yeah, and that's going to ruin it right then. And if they refuse, <laughs> if the shipping company comes up to the door and says, We're not dropping off this package until you pay us, yep. and the data center is like, Well, we're not paying you, then now my server's in limbo somewhere in a warehouse and I have to deal with that. And, and IX took care of all of that for me and make sure that worked great. Uh, and the, and s- they will configure things for you. Like they'll set up the BIOS exactly how you want. They configure the IPMI to have the right IP addresses so that you'll be able to access it via your VPN as soon as you plug it in. Yeah. And and just they can install the OS for you, even no matter how picky you are about the
0: partitioning. Yeah. And even if you think you're a real expert, like you really know your stuff, is like almost a, a, a perfect chance. Somebody at iX Systems knows it even better. Like they have people that are experts uh, on the, the software chat and says, the hardware. Here,
1: uh, uh, in the chat, they say they'll even sell you an atom box if a Xeon will suck too much power for your use. You know, if you if you call up one of the other places, they're not going to want to sell you their cheap little atom box. They want to sell you their big server. Yeah. Uh, well, the atom processor
0: has changed a lot over the years. Like I think that's i right. recognize it's, it's, it's that.
1: It's not the little. It's not the little yeah. one soldered into your into your uh, net or whatever. Netbook. Yeah. No. Right. This is a C
0: twenty seven
1: fifty is an an eight core server processor with VM uh, yeah. and. Uh,
0: Vert D. Encryption offload. Yeah, and so you got, you got VTD, VTX. VTX you got VTX. You've got uh, essentially a server-grade, close to server-grade, just low power. and, the, and, the, and I, well, that's, It even has ECC RAM, yeah. which is
1: a big difference for server-grade.
0: You know, uh, by the way, we've mentioned it in passing in times, but uh, co-founder of iX Systems, uh, Matt, has a post up on their blog about the history of oh. iX Systems. So uh, it's a good read if you want to go over there and learn yeah, a bit more I, about that. and
1: it, it kind of reads similar to the history of... Um, two cows you know they started before the dot-com thing was big and had a real company Were doing things uh and then you know two cows managed to just weather the dot-com thing and avoid the the craziness yeah ix actually uh before it was called ix uh you know they went through the whole thing where you know they leveraged this and that and you know trying to be a dot-com company or whatever and it didn't work very well and so the people that weren't into that split off and started uh I think it was called off my server or something. Yeah, off my uh, server. Yep. Uh, and and they did that and they kept the the idea of we just want to run a company and sell products to people, make them happy, and have fun doing our job. And uh, that's the business that ended up surviving and then they uh, took on the name IX systems again and and it's still staffed by those same people that just want to sell a product that's gonna work for you and have fun at their job. They're not out there looking to be acquired by Dell or something for billions of dollars. No, or they,
0: they wouldn't because Dell can't do it as good as they do.
1: Exactly. They, they, it, well, they just wouldn't like their job anymore after it, and what's the point? Right.
0: Yeah, very good point of that. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go check them out. Get the free white paper if you need to uh, grease the wheels to make the move to a better hardware OEM. ixsystems.com. Slash TechSnap. Alan, let's give a quick plug. This is the halfway point in the show, usually, where uh, it's a good time for folks to download the next show, the NHD version at that. Why not? That's Sly Minix, episode 74 of BSS. Yes, now. Uh,
1: where we interview Andrew Tenenbaum, who's a, like epically famous professor who wrote the Minix operating system yeah. and teaches uh, how to write operating systems. So, and he tells the history going back to, like, now originally somebody had uh, taken the source code for AT&T Unix, which is what became BSD, uh, and just, like, documented the code to the point of, you now you could step through it and learn how it works and use that as a class to teach people. And AT&T was like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> and so they put a, a clause in the license in the next version saying you couldn't use it to teach stuff. Um, and uh, then... So what Tannenbaum and some other people did is like, well, let's write our own more simple operating system Hell that we yes. can use to teach the concepts of Hell how yeah. to do this. Hell yeah. Uh, and then more recently, he got funding from the EU to build it into uh, a microkernel system that could withstand failures. You know, If a driver crashes, we don't want to restart the whole computer. Right. You know, If you're an end user, restarting the whole computer is a solution. If you're a nuclear power plant, or a rover. you want the driver to recover <laughs> yeah. and restart without taking out the other functionality.
0: Yeah, yeah. Or a rover on Mars. So, episode 74 of the BSD Now show, go check it out and uh, grab a download. And then you can get double Allen, See, so you get double, you get Allen back to back. But, Alan, uh, with our news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. <laughs> Thanks for sending your emails to TechSnap at JupiterBroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website, or even better starting a thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com, then we're even more likely to see it. It's amazing! Our first email this week comes in from Tom. Click-to-play usefulness is coming into question by Tom, and he says, Click-to-play was mentioned in last week's TechSnap discussion about Flash exploits. Remember, this is a plugin that doesn't start Flash until you click it on the, in your webpage. Yep. Any thoughts on how useful this really is? Many are recommending it, but a bug filed against Chromium has some interesting comments, such as click-to-play is not actually a security boundary. In particular, it's always been subject to click-jacking. Any thoughts? Firefox and IE may be susceptible to the same problem. Thanks, as always. Great show. I love it. Tom. Well, if there's a virus on your computer
1: already that is able to simulate mouse clicks, then the Flash exploit is probably your least of your worries. Um, in general, it's defense in depth, right? It's Nothing's going to provide absolute security other than unplugging the machine... Right? Would it be possible um, for a website to use JavaScript or something to simulate a click? I don't think they generally can't move your mouse to a different coordinate. Right, and Th- that, the, the
0: browser should prevent that from happening. Yeah. I think.
1: Uh, and so, you know, then if yeah, if your browser is compromised to the level there, then they don't need a flash exploit anymore at that point. But in general, nothing's going to provide absolute security. But every defense in depth, the more layers you can add to to help, why not, right? Uh, so click-to-play, part of it can also just be avoid the annoyance factor of, you know, that flash ad with sound in it starting automatically, <laughs> not being able to figure out which tab it's coming and from.
0: And remember, like I mentioned last week, I think I noticed a battery life improvement, too, when oh, I tried it for will. a little while. You definitely yeah. will see that. So there's, there's, there's another good reason for it, too.
1: Yeah, so yeah, even just in addition to security, it's more of a uh, quality of life and battery life uh, enhancement. So yeah, it's not perfect security, but nothing is.
0: All right, Alan, are you ready for our next email? This one comes in from Cats Rules. Uh, recommend it. What's a recommendation to build or buy? What are some pros and cons for building your own sand versus buying a pre-built sand? For you know, say maybe Dell or HP. Uh, we have previously, uh, we had previously bought the cheapest sand from HP we could find. I think it was around ten thousand to twelve thousand dollars. Haven't had any problems with it, but in a few years it'll be end of life. And now I'm wondering if we should buy another one or maybe just try to build our own for a fraction of the cost. I don't want to cheap out on critical systems. But I also don't want to be throwing out money if there's a cheaper way with the same or close to same result at a fraction of the cost. We're a small organization, maybe about 40 people. Mostly, we're just paper-pushing Word documents and photos around the network. Everything is running on vSphere, so we really just need something that supports iSCSI so the ESX servers can tie into the SAN. Also, if you are for building your own, what OS do you recommend? At the moment, I'm looking at FreeNAS. So what do you think, Alan, for this kind of job? Well, specifically,
1: because of ESX... Something like a TrueNAS, which is the more supported version, that'll be a little bit more like the HP, uh, is certified by VMware to work with ESX. So you'll even so you won't have any problems with your vSphere support contract or anything because you'll be using a certified d- uh, storage device.
0: So assuming those certified, because it sounds like if he's willing to build his own, maybe being certified isn't a. You
1: know, a deciding is factor. Much of
0: a requirement. Yeah,
1: uh, but I, I don't know if FreeNAS is certified. Or, I don't think it can be because FreeNAS can be anything. Right? Yeah, yeah. But uh, the true NASs are certified, so uh, you definitely might want to look at that. Um, they'll definitely be cheaper than the HP or Dell equivalent. Uh, but let's, and let's only say, a little bit more expensive than a FreeNAS. If he but, built,
0: if he built his own rig, like he built something, you know, with a bunch of drives in it, and a, and and you know, maybe he did ZFS and he had a decent RAID setup. Yeah. Uh, do you think there'd be a, a long-term practical difference between uh, – assuming that the VMware certification more More likely, he'll get more performance
1: out of, his home, uh, out of a free NAS than he will out of the HP or Dell.
0: Well, yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying to – so for me, my route just, would be – The
1: first thing to understand is, is the difference between a SAN and a NAS. And really, the only difference is that in a SAN, the only thing going over the network link is storage traffic. It basically means having a separate land that's only for storage. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not an Ethernet land, right? They do like fiber, fiber. wire or not fiber, wire, uh, fiber channel or yeah. or uh, infinite band or something like. Yeah. that. But in general, it just means a network that doesn't have any other traffic over it, right? It's all just going to be storage, and you know, it's all about low latency and high bandwidth and so on.
0: Here's what. Uh, my- but
1: in general, it comes down to being the same thing as a NAS, except for where how it's connected.
0: I if I was if I was Cat's rules- um, I would probably be dog's rules, but cats are fine. I would, uh, I would contact iX Systems, just as an example, kind of tell them what you want to do, see what their price would be, see what kind of hardware they would do, and look at what you can do, what you can build, and how you would support that. And then also remember the warranty aspect of it, and then who's going to be long-term supporting it. One of the nice things about a purchased unit that comes with a warranty is Let's say you, Cat's Rules, are they going to be the person who's responsible for supporting this hardware for the next few years. Well, uh, let's say you want a five-year life cycle out of this NAS. I mean I'm making up a lot of assumptions here. But let's say you want a five-year life cycle out of this thing you're about to buy. Which ties in
1: great with a uh, roundup thing we have later on with the four or five-year life cycle out of a, a storage device. <laughs>
0: If you are going to be supporting it that entire time guaranteed, there's a lot less risk with you build your own. If there's a chance, or whoever's going to be supporting it, moves on, gets a different job, won't be there in, say, two years, it's a lot nicer when it's a it's a vendor-supported device with a vendor warranty, with specs and all the information. They can call up a sales rep, or they can call somebody up and get information about it, buy replacement parts. So there's the one thing that's really hard to kind of measure the cost of is, how easy is the system going to be to hand off? And if I hand it off to somebody completely different, how how what how enabled are they going to be to manage this box and that's something you have to consider too in your purchase
1: right but at the same time FreeNAS is kind of a it might actually be an easier interface for a random person to deal with than whatever comes with the hp
0: oh yeah i was just specifically thinking like you know if they went out and got their own like you know uh case and you know chassis right. and put drives in it and put like a you know a SAS right. card in there or something like that so just I've, becomes kind of a unique beast that it's harder for yeah. somebody else to come along and support.
1: Exactly, and they don't know all the specifics or why you chose certain parts and so on. Yeah, definitely so, use
0: FreeNAS if you build your own, right? I mean, yeah. that, that seems like that's a foregone conclusion.
1: Well, even even there, uh, so basically what I'd recommend is is call up IX, list off your requirements and see what they offer, and then decide whether you want to pay a little bit more for the TrueNAS and the extra support, or if you just want to buy the rig from them and then uh, throw FreeNAS on it yourself.
0: Yeah. Could uh, but I would,
1: I would say most likely either way, I would... Buy the hardware from IX just because you get the hardware warranty that way,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: and and you know having an advanced replacement on your hard drives for the first year makes a huge difference.
0: Alan, I uh, I liked our next question because. TechSnap, usually we talk about stuff at such a technical level that we sometimes forget that people are struggling with some of the more basic things like explaining the value of passwords. He says, uh, this comes in from AM255. Hey, guys. I recently started working at a new company, and so far I'm quite happy. However, I have one problem. It seems like a lot of my colleagues don't know how to implement proper password security in their applications, using plain NB5 hash with the same salt for everyone, etc. The problem is I'm no expert myself. So I'm having a hard time explaining why key, stretching, unique salts, slow comparisons, etc. is actually important. I found some nice resources, and he links to that, but I know for many people it will be too long to read. I thought about rewriting it to be shorter and easier to read, but I'm afraid that it just might get some misinformation in there if I do that. Furthermore, some of these people have much more experience than I do and I'm not even done with my probation period yet. So how do I tell them that they are doing wrong if I can't explain to them exactly why? Or should I take a longer approach and make sure I understand all of the concepts perfectly before trying to convince them? Any help would be greatly appreciated. What do you think, Alan?
1: I think the biggest thing is to look at that big red warning at the top of the website you linked to, which says, important warning, if you're thinking of writing your own password hashing code, please don't. <laughs> it's too easy to screw up, and there's no reason to, when there are known good ones out there that you can just use. And that's where PHPass came from. Uh, now, PHPass isn't the strongest... But it's because it ha- it's designed to be compatible. It, no matter what, how old your system is, it'll still work on it. Uh, and it, it will work. And I would recommend using that over something else to start with. And then, uh, but yeah, like it, it starts off kind of showing you know what happens if you just do like an MD5 or a, right. like a SHA-256 or something. That's really not good enough. because. And then it goes on to explain rainbow tables and stuff. I have a similar article like this somewhere. I don't know if I actually still have that, if it's still accessible. I think the domain expired. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, oh Alan that's when uh, you know
0: you've been on the internet for too long you've yeah, got I random domains that expire somewhere but yeah yeah.
1: well it was it was actually for a podcast called the Geek Roundtable which is what eventually uh we started as TechSnap instead Uh basically when I was leaving college I had the idea for this podcast where a bunch of geeky people would sit around and discuss topics like this hmm. and then uh but I had trouble getting reliable people and I had no idea how to do the recording for it. And it was just going to be complicated and horrible. Uh, and then I met you and we did text (laughs) them.
0: Oh, and the rest was history. hundred and ninety nine weeks later. You did all the hard
1: stuff and that (laughs) solved all the problems for me.
0: (laughs) So I was thinking like what the the other problem he has besides just a technical problem is really kind of a cultural problem. He's a new guy. He's still on probation. He wants to come in and change the way they do work. Like they're going to look at him and be like, what do you know, kid? And the one thing – and this is just a really horrible answer. But one thing is like you can lead by example over time. You can show them how to do it properly. But if you're not in a position to influence the projects that matter, that's kind of not exactly a rewarding position to be in. I I think it's going to be a slow, steady – as you educate yourself – as you make new discoveries, this is what you need to do is you have to you have to find these new discoveries, become passionate about these things, share that passion that energy when you find something that excites you about this will spread, and people will also want to know about it and that's a good way to sort of pass things around. People will make their own individual discoveries, come to their own conclusions, and as long as the data all kind of leads to the right direction, they'll probably come to the same conclusions you have already. It's just going to take a while yep. all right any other any other notes on that one? No, you're still looking for that uh, thing. No, that's right okay. All right, so we're still looking for your TechSnap 200 emails. We've gotten a few. We have uh, room for a few more. Next week is episode 200 of the TechSnap program. We want to kind of do something special and read how the TechSnap show has influenced a project you've worked on, your work, home, network. Uh, If we've answered a question for you, if a story we've covered has been particularly insightful for a problem you've had, how has the TechSnap show impacted you across the range of how you use technology? Send it in for episode 200, TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com, or go to the Jupiter Broadcasting website. Click that contact link. Choose TechSnap from the drop down. Put episode 200 right there in the subject line because I'm lazy, right? I'm lazy. And I just want to search for episode 200 and just have them all show up for me like magic. So if you would do that, I would really appreciate it. Also the subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. And Alan, with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't quite fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And a lot of these links came from our great subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. And our first uh, Roundup link this week is a story that a lot of people have been talking about. We covered a little bit on Tech Talk today, and Alan and I were just talking about it uh, during the segment break, too. It's being called Ghost. It's a vulnerability affecting Linux systems, allowing code execution. And unfortunately, it kind of affects... Most Linux systems, because it affects glibc. and right.
1: glibc, which is the standard library that every app uses to do common things. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in particular, it seems that somebody fixed the vulnerability without realizing it was a vulnerability a while ago. Oh. Uh, but because of the way, you know, that the code kind of trickles down, uh, there are lots and lots of Linux dishes out there that are running an older version because they don't update. Well, and for long-term support
0: devices too.
1: Right? Yeah, there's tons of embedded yeah. devices that are obviously just not getting at all. Yeah, I mean, all but, the current like long- distros
0: have patches out, but if you're on an older distro, right. hmm. well, it's more
1: that um, you know the patch has been out for a long time, but nobody knew that it was a security patch. It was just a regular, oh, yeah. right? Uh, uh, they might not uh, have been effects. as motivated. And so, if you're on a long-term support version of Ubuntu or whatever, they don't change the version of GLIBC because that'll break all your packages. Uh, so that will now release uh, the older version with this fix applied uh, and update so that it doesn't break all your stuff or whatever. But So in general uh, it's just kind of interesting to see that while a change that fixes problem was introduced into Linux ecosystem uh, months and months and months ago, mm-hmm. it doesn't actually apply to most people's computers yet because of how it wasn't long it takes for that stuff to actually... Well, it wasn't tagged to security and so Uh, it takes a long time for a project to decide to upsuck that newer code. Uh, Part of that might be just gun shyness because of the risk of new code Mm -hmm. causing new problems. Mm -hmm. And part of it is, you know, the distros only do a release every so often. And so they grab, uh, when they start building the new release, they grab what is current then, right? Because they need to build with it and test with it the whole way along. Mm -hmm. And so you're always going to be X months behind what is active development. And then when you start talking about long term support versions, that's even going to be even further behind Well, I so mean even though they had the fix for this uh, it's been out for a long long time. most people don't have it
0: i also uh, I would point out that it affects a a it's not just applications written in c and c+ on linux it's also Ruby and Python applications affected as well.
1: you think right, because if they're being interpreted by Ruby and Python, which are c programs. Yes.
0: Yeah. And so think about the scale of applications that are impacted by well, this. Well
1: basically it's it's in the code that you use to look up network addresses, right? So it's like DNS, which is basically in everything that involves yeah. the internet or the network
0: at all yeah. ever. I mean if I was if I was a betting man, I would bet that we're gonna have a story in a future tech snap about a system being compromised because of this exploit. Seems likely. Awesome. I mean there's just yep. so much such a wide range of software affected by it.
1: Yeah. And I, I can probably predict that two years from now we're going to have a story about somebody not having patched this.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately I think you're probably right. Uh, this next story is pretty cool. Uh, so over in Germany there's an underground bunker that's been refitted as a low oxygen low staff nuclear explosion power proof whatever data center. Like I guess it could be the apocalypse and your data is so, going to be fine.
1: <laughs> so it's, it's you know another data center built in an old nuclear bunker. Yeah. The differences are because it's so far out in the boonies, like it's right. in a town that only has 186 people living in it. So uh, so the fire department couldn't possibly get there in time if there was a fire. Well, okay. So instead, they designed the facility to just not have people in it very often, and they actually keep the oxygen concentration so low that people can't survive inside the building.
0: Oh, that's clever. And so
1: if you stand there and light a match in the building, the match will just go out because there's not enough oxygen.
0: So, but here's, so they say it's a, it's, 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 it can survive a, a nuclear bomb.
1: Well, it's a bunker that was designed for the military to hide in and not, and to survive a nuclear a- attack.
0: Yeah. But is the assumption there that all of the connectivity is also going to stay online after the not time? necessarily. Okay, so it's just about the data. It's just about Although,
1: the A lot of it probably does cuz you know, they that was part of the the goal of a nuclear bunker was that A we need to survive and B we need to still be able to communicate with the rest of the world and make sure they survived, right? So, it's entirely about but you know, it's got like Eleven foot thick walls of concrete and so on. And That's like pretty 20 sweet. Twenty feet underground. Scale engine should rent some space
0: in there, Alan. Just rent out a little space in there for Scale Engine,
1: right? Uh, but it's interesting to see how they're trying to do it without having to have people yeah. uh, service the machines yeah. very often, right? Because I guess they either have to wear an oxygen mask or they have to pump oxygen in there, wait a little while, and then send the people in.
0: Uh, this next story, it's you know, it's my old whipping boy. Uh, so we've talked a little bit about this WebView vulnerability in Android. Uh, And it continues to be a problem. And so people have been uh, ragging on Google about not patching it on devices older than Android 4.3, which is a ton of devices, right? And so essentially what it is is if you have an app or you're using the built-in Android browser – you could get a serious exploit. And the problem is, is a lot of apps use this built. So even if you have Chrome or Firefox on your Android device, a lot of apps are still just using the built-in WebView because that's what you do when you build an Android application. Anything that does that is affected by this vulnerability. So Googs has come out publicly to talk a little bit about it. On January 12th, they have released this statement saying, if the affected version of WebView is before uh, Android 4.4, we generally do not develop the patches ourselves, but welcome patches with the report for consideration. Other than notifying OEMs, we will not be able to take action on any report after it's affecting versions before 4.4 and they're not co- accompanied with the patch. So don't bother notifying them if you don't submit code, they say.
1: Well, I, it still makes sense to file a bug report and then maybe someone else can write the code. I understand what they're saying. So, and It kind of does fall to the vendors like Samsung and so on that, that sold all these devices with that old version. But at the same time, Google sold me a device with an old version and they're not updating it. Right. Like, I, I can't upgrade to 4.4 on this.
0: And no, that's an even an Nexus if I device. could,
1: the, the old 4. something that's on here doesn't bloody well work. You know, when I upgraded too far ahead, the device wasn't good enough to run the OS anymore. And the upgrade actually degraded my experience rather than
0: improving it. Well, and 20% of Android users are, uh, are on 4.2, and 19% are on 4.1. So a huge portion of Android users are on versions that aren't going to get fixes. Yeah. It seems like, I mean, I know like you have but there's products – But I'm finally not. <laughs> right. You got the Nexus 6. You're, you're on Lollipop, right? Yeah. Which is nice. Uh, but it seems like if you're going to become a platform provider, you you can't just have an arbitrary, well, I know that you said you're going to stop supporting this release after an ins- insanely short amount of time. That's I know you said that. But it turns out that the bulk of your users are still using releases older than that, and you technically have the ability to do it, right? Because I think they could even push out a patch through the Play API services. Like, I don't even think it involves them needing to touch the whole OS. I don't know if they can do that
1: or I not, I oh, think especially they can, with the older though. ones. They've kind of architected the newer versions so that they can do that, so they're not yes.
0: uh, beholden to the OEMs I to think, fix think I think everything after Gingerbread they can, but I'm not sure. I don't know. But you know, there's still lots of people running 2 it. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Uh, uh, Seven point almost eight percent of Android users are on a two version. So oh, that's a lot lower than it used to be. It is, but it's still millions when you're talking about okay. the Android user base. Uh, self-repairing disk arrays, Alan.
1: Yes, finally, uh, so this is uh, a great paper, and basically they're saying now that disks are so cheap for the amount of storage you get, uh, the biggest cost is usually if a drive fails actually having to pay someone to go to the data center and f- physically remove the old drive and swap in the new one or whatever, which I can attest to having just replaced drives in a server in Portland. Now, It didn't actually cost me anything because I had a friend do it, but in general, that's the most complicated part. So they said, well, let's look at what it would take to build a disk array uh, where it could run for four or five years with the 99.999% reliability. So, you know, only a, a, a five nines chance that it will not lose its data for the whole four or five years i want that yeah uh and so they came up with some formulas and stuff and uh they talk about a couple different ways of doing the raid uh and they have uh this uh two-dimensional raid array where the is split all over the place and you can see uh that's kind of on uh is that page two yeah page two they got some diagrams Mm -hmm. it's all Mm -hmm. weird looking Mm -hmm. uh and they talk about, so if you built an array that has 21 data disks, seven parity disks, and 19 spares, you'd be wasting 55% of the space, but you could manage to get 5.05 nines out of it.
0: But I guess the assumption there is drives are cheap, that it's okay to waste that yeah. much space.
1: And and you're saving a lot of money because you, you buy all these up front, and then you just don't have to even look at the thing for five years. Right, you just walk or away. So and- this is this is four years. Okay. Uh and the most, the best reliability or the uh, best space efficiency was to buy, build an array that had forty-five data disks, ten parity disks, and thirty-three spares.
0: Thirty-three spares.
1: You, yeah, you only lost uh, forty-eight point eight six percent of the space, uh, and you got somewhere between four point nine eight and five point zero five nines.
0: Huh. Thirty-three spares. Huh. That's yeah. kind of
1: nuts. if you built an array that had sixty-six data disks and 12 parity disks, and an unlimited, like, infinite number of spares, you could uh, still never get to five nines. When you get your array gets too big, uh, it's just not possible to guarantee it's, that you're not going to have too many drives failing. Now, uh, these numbers are based on, like, a mean time to failure of, like, 100,000 hours, giving you an annualized failure rate of, like, eight and a half percent, where we know that number's usually about half that mm. or less, mm-hmm. depending on the drives. So these are pessimistic numbers, but... You know, like if that. you're designing one where you're guaranteeing it's not going to fail for five years, you kind of need to be pessimistic. This is a great,
0: right? This is, and it's only, uh, what, it's uh, really only four pages long.
1: Yeah, uh, and so they referenced <laughs> the Backblaze study and showed the curve how, you know, 5% of disks fail. or uh, A disk will f- have a 5% chance of failing in the first year or so. Then it drops to only a 1.5 or 1.4% chance to fail until it's more than three years old then it jumps up to like a 12% chance to fail uh, at any time. And and that's based on, you know, SATA disks wear out after so long. And that's based on data from Backblaze. And uh, their data could be a little skewed by specific models of drives they bought and so on. They didn't really... Backblaze bought a lot of the same drives rather than having a good sampling of all the different types of drives and so on. Uh, and partly is, uh, you know, some of the numbers are skewed slightly because they were buying... Uh, the external USB drives and then, and then tearing them out of them the enclosure. Of yeah. <laughs> and that, that probably skewed their numbers a little bit. But And uh, part of their uh, math was based on the idea that you could uh, resilver the disk in 12 hours. Hmm. And then they changed it to 24 hours because okay. a 4 terabyte disk you can't possibly resilver in 12 hours. No. Even if it was going at full throttle
0: the whole time. Yeah.
1: And then uh, luckily uh, then they looked at uh, RAID 6 which oh, is the yeah. same as RAID Z2. So yeah. that's where you have two parity disks yeah. in your array. Yeah. Um, if you have 10 disks uh, with two parity... So 10 data disks, two parity disks, so a 12-disc array with 18 spares, which wastes 66% of the space, mm-hmm. you can manage to achieve uh, your five nines. But if you uh, do more raid sets of that, uh, you can't quite. Even with the unlimited number of spares, you're topping out at you 4.5-9s. Know, or even 4.3 if you're doing uh, 40 disks. Uh, so then... Uh, they looked at a theoretical way of, of having RAID with triple parity, which ZFS actually has, right? It's called RAID Z3. But uh, they didn't; they weren't actually looking at uh, ZFS. They were looking at like hardware RAID, and so they didn't; they couldn't find a controller that had triple parity RAID, right. like ZFS does. But uh, looking at a four-year survival rate uh, with the space overhead of selected sets of RAID arrays with fifteen disks each and triple parity RAID. If you did a Raid Z with 12 data disks and 3 parity disks and 13 spares, <laughs> uh, your space efficiency would be, you'd be wasting uh, 57% of the space, okay. but you could get as high as 5.179s, uh, mm-hmm. which is quite good. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you did the same thing, but with an extra spare, a 14th spare, you could get as high as 5.669s.
0: To set it and leave it storage.
1: Uh, And then if you did two sets of those, so 24 discs, (laughs) basically two Raid Z2 groups, or Raid Z3 groups, then 24 discs, six parity discs, and 20 spares, wasting uh, 52% of the space, and you get uh, 4.9 to 5.2 nines of reliability. Uh, And so on. Hmm. Uh, So... I'm uh, going to play with it a little bit some more later. i want to take their formulas and uh, redo it with smaller sets. So what if, you uh, you know, generally you don't recommend going quite that wide with your stripes sure. uh, with Raid Z3. So, you know, if you do that and have more parity discs per set uh, and then maybe needs fewer spares and so on, it, can you still get that same reliability? Save some money. Yeah. So if you do Raid Z3s uh, with like six discs and three parity discs, um, Or you know four or eight disks and three parity disks, and then your spares or whatever. uh, Can you get to the five nines easily? And uh, I know ZFS has already started talking about uh, quadruple parity (laughs) RAID to uh, for people that want to build something like this that just needs to survive no matter what.
0: Quad RAID. That's how you have to say it. It's quad RAID. No, quad RAID. Come on, that sounds awesome. All right. Hey, I'll be RAID Z (laughs) four. Next roundup story. What the hell's Canada up to? Uh, apparently, they're casting a global surveillance dragnet over file downloads. The covert operation revealed by the CBC in collaboration with The Intercept says that this operation taps into internet cables to analyze records of up to 15 million downloads daily. From popular websites commonly used to share videos, photographs, music, and other files. According to the documents, the levitation program can monitor downloads in several countries across Europe, the Middle East, North, America, North Africa, and North America. It's led by the Communications Security Establishment, or the CSE, Canada's NSA. Uh, and uh, they say every single thing that you do in this case, uploading, downloading files to these sites, is being archived, collected, and analyzed. And they apparently specifically targeting SendSpace, RapidShare, and MegaUpload, none of which I use. They say the CSE ah. finds 315 downloads each month. So out of out of all of the millions, they're they're tagging 0.0001 percent of the total collected data. Yeah, that seems like a really expensive operation. I wonder if they actually yep. keep a copy of all the files. Could you imagine the storage required to do <laughs> that? Yeah. Uh, well, I remember when they're talking about some of this stuff where uh, back when I was in
1: college taking an ethics class uh, they've been talking about uh requiring isps to retain everything you upload like all the data that went back and forth to your cable modem mm-hmm. for a year and it was just like you realize how much data that is especially for- and in particular i was with a, like a small isp that only served this city and nothing else right well, almost everybody gets their internet in canada from one of like the big four telcos or big, maybe there's like eight major telcos that have tons of money. But I was with one of the small ones. I was just a small family-owned company here in the city, and it probably would have just put them out of business trying to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Especially when you got guys like me streaming 24-7. Yeah. All right, Alan, watch out for the ATM bombs. The ATM bombs are coming. Everybody freak out. The ATM bombs are coming to the United States.
1: Well, there's just never been one, and they find that kind of odd.
0: That is odd. Uh, they say, well,
1: in particular, they're saying because it's so easy to steal debit cards in the U.S. because they don't have chips. Uh, that nobody's exhorted, uh you know, gone far enough to actually bother with this part. I think part of it is also the twenty-four-seven culture in the U.S. means that it's harder to be alone with an ATM. Hmm. You know, a lot of places in Europe, your business closes and that's the end of the day or whatever, right? Whereas there's a lot of places in the U.S. that are open twenty-four-seven or whatever. Uh, but basically, what they do is uh, there are two. Holes that have access to the money in an ATM, right? The door at the back where you know Brinks or whatever goes and loads the money into the ATM, and the slot on the front where the money comes out. So uh, these guys just come up with like a a, you know a a fire extinguisher style tank of gas or like you know an acetylene tank or whatever, and stick a probe or whatever into the money slot and start shooting gas in there until it gets full and and then they you know a spark or whatever and they cause an explosion. And it rips open the door... The, the vault door on the other side of the ATM. And then they... Depending where it is... You know, they can break into the bank. Uh, and, you know, normally... When you see an ATM in the bank... of the lobby of a bank or whatever... You know, they're mounted in the wall. And then if you walk into the bank... There's like a little door with like a... You know, a $5 hardware store lock on it. Uh, that you can just kick in or whatever. And then you're in the room at the back of the ATMs. And uh, if you've blown open the ATM with gas then you know there oh, should be me? stacks of money just laying there <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sounds like now, a good gig more, Yeah more likely you'll see this at like convenience stores or something Yeah yeah or anywhere there's <clears throat> ATMs that are uh, not as built into the wall kind of thing Right part of the infrastructure. where You wouldn't have to where you wouldn't have to blow it up <laughs> causing yeah. a lot of noise and then break into the bank
0: Yeah and then the convenience stores steal much the money, easier but, much much yeah. easier
1: yeah. Except for you know most of them are open 24-7, so
0: there's you're not going to be able to be alone with the ATM after it goes boom <laughs> to, to steal all the money. So. Right, right. Uh, Alan, uh, a couple of weeks ago we covered uh, Mozilla's announcement about doubling down on the uh, Tor network. And uh, they just did a blog post about deploying Tor relays. With a little bit of information about uh, what they're doing so far. Uh, they're going to have Tor nodes that run on dedicated hardware. Uh, The nodes should be logically and physically separated from our production infrastructure. They want to do low-cost, commoditized hardware, and they want to get them operational within three weeks. So they chose to use – they have some spare and decommissioned hardware they'll be using, which includes things like a Juniper EX4200 switch, uh, three HP uh, rigs with 48 gigs of RAM and Xeons. uh, And they're going to – they're analyzing, like, where they're going to deploy them at. They say the current design will be redundant, too, so that way it'll be, you know, reliable. Are Uh, these
1: the relays or the exit nodes?
0: I Just think relays, these are relays.
1: Right? Yeah. Uh, they don't want to get involved in the legal mess of running the exit.
0: I guess you know? not. Yeah. I think
1: – and, you know, there's lots of I, – well, I don't know if there are enough, but there's quite a few relays out there. It's the exit nodes that are the, the bottleneck to Tor. They think they'll be able uh, to put but,
0: 400 megabits on Tor.
1: Yeah, and that'll push data around inside the Tor network, but if there's nowhere for it to exit that's not already overloaded, then mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the biggest problem with Tor is that uh, because it's used for so many things that cause problems – uh, running an exit node is is legally difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, right.
0: I don't know. Uh, the oh, apparently, is,
1: the, they said they, they yeah. are going to run some exit nodes, but I don't,
0: I, I don't. see anything in this post about. They do have the a bunch notes. of
1: lawyers, so hopefully. So um, I'm reading right
0: now about their, the security. The security precautions are taking They have these right, outlines because
1: they don't want uh, that to be a vulnerability inside. You know, right. if somebody could break in through that and met, you know, infect the next release of Firefox, that would be a big problem. Yeah. Um, the thing is, that I hope they look at doing uh, diversity in their Tor nodes. Uh, don't run them all on Linux. You know, even the, the Tor people, of begging people, you know, please run some of the nodes on OpenBSD and FreeBSD and so on, just so that if there's say this GLIBC ghost vulnerability, it doesn't affect every Tor node.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or you know, if the NSA finds a vulnerability in Linux and doesn't tell anybody about it, they can't use it to take out most of the Tor network mm-hmm. if we spread out and use a bunch of different operating systems for it.
0: Good point, Alan. Uh So you have a you have a mailing list posting here about a possible Facebook outage, outage. Somebody tripped. So over there a cable. was
1: a, a, a Facebook outage. Uh, oh, there was okay. days ago. Okay, uh, and it affected Facebook, Instagram, uh, HipChat, Tinder, MySpace, a bunch of wow, places. Wow, really? Um, yeah, it was just a, like a routing issue or whatever. And then Lizard Squad went on Twitter and tried to claim credit for it. And then I, I linked to the post. It's like, uh, yeah, they're trying to claim credit for somebody tripping over a cable or whatever. Uh, so the mailing list in question here is the uh, North American Network Operators Group. So these are the guys that actually, is basically the collection of network engineers that run all the backbones and all the BGP and everything in North America. Uh, and so, you know, they don't, they're like, no, it wasn't a denial of service tech.
0: This is a great mailing list. Now I'm reading the rest of the mailing list, Alan. Well, like, I
1: was actually reading the previous entry, which yeah. was about uh, uh, NetMap and using FreeBSD and, and routing 10 gigabits of traffic instead of buying a Cisco. Yeah, uh, that has NSA malware built into it.
0: This is really interesting. This is this is a great mailing list. This that that post is worth it just for that mailing list. Yep.
1: Uh, uh, heard- and uh, yeah, so I, I basically discovered this by accident. Um, and in, in particular, it looks like uh, some of the sites that went down, like HipChat, uh, they weren't actually down at all, but they have a hard dependency on Facebook. So uh, because they use Facebook to log in or whatever, when their software couldn't reach Facebook, uh. it wouldn't render the front page of their website. Wow. So it was actually causing their site to be down just because Facebook was down. Well, which is, you know, you should definitely architect your site so that it can recover from right. Facebook not working. Right. You might assume that Facebook will always be up, but there's, you know.
0: So uh, switching gears from Facebook to iTunes, iTunes Connected, which is the development portal for developers that are publishing apps in the App Store, apparently was allowing developers when they would log in to gain access to other developers' applications. Pretty big boo-boo. And as a result, Apple has shut down uh, iTunes Connect while they work on it. Uh, they responded pretty what, quickly to do that. No, but, was it
1: just that you could purposely break into some of this app? Or was it the the title kind of suggests that you would log in and it would just randomly throw you into somebody else's account?
0: That's what the title says. So here's what they say. Uh, the developers have noticed that when they would log in with their account, they begin having access to other apps they did clearly had not developed. Some screenshots on Twitter showed, for example, like some indie developer having access to pretty big name applications like BlackBerry Messenger uh, and things like that so mm.
1: that's a uh, way to build confidence
0: it says it says uh it, it says up in the title bar that it's blackberry limited so it looks like they actually went in as the blackberry user yep. yeah yeah that is no Seems good like some wires got crossed there. yeah so apple shut that s down and i guess they're working on it right now <laughs> yeah. pretty embarrassing. so
1: if you'd like to update your
0: apple app too bad yeah go screw yourself Sorry about your luck. Verizon to, uh, is about to end construction of its fiber network. Wah, wah, wah. Yes. Uh, so Fios will
1: not, in the uh, relatively near term anyway, files will not be coming to any new cities. Uh, they'll be maybe building out their infrastructure in the existing cities they've already reached to, to make more money. Uh, but they're not going to keep uh, expanding files into other places. While files <sighs> is making them lots of money, they're making more money, off, more money ripping you off on cell phone plans.
0: And DSL. And they're well, the,
1: specifically, they mentioned wireless is the reason why they're not oh, building geez. BIOS at the moment. Yeah, fibre networks more money money off, off of, uh, is wireless. Yeah, they can make more money off uh, ripping you off on a cell phone plan. There's just
0: there's no there's no replacement for fibre to the home. There's nothing like yep. it, and it's that's a shame, right there. Mm. Uh, how, well, you know what? Maybe Google and Ting will save us because Ting's working on rolling out fibre too.
1: Yes, I uh, never know. If I didn't already have my own connection.
0: Hey, uh, I'd Alan. We have a PSA here, don't we? A little bit. A business email compromise. The business email compromise is a sophisticated scam targeting business working with foreign suppliers. It sounds like a PSA to me, Alan.
1: Yeah. So the Internet Crime uh, Complaint Center has issued an advisory because they've got so many complaints. Uh, and they're talking about this uh, scam people are doing over email and basically misdirecting emails. Uh, so when you get when you're buying stuff from a supplier overseas and they mail you the information to wire the money or whatever these guys would be intercepting that and then swapping it with their own uh, bank account number so then you end up paying your very large payment for you know a container load of you know whatever you're buying uh, from overseas with their bank account number and then stealing your money hmm. uh, so formerly it was known as the man in the email scam
0: man in the email uh,
1: in total, they targeted uh, just shy of 1,200 U.S. businesses. Oh boy! And
0: managed to steal 180 million dollars. Oh boy! Oh, oh boy! Oh boy! Watch out! Watch out! Now it's starting to get serious. Now you're starting to talk about money. Now we're getting serious. Now, now it's a problem we got to fix.
1: <laughs> oh, sorry. The business uh, email compromise scam is linked to some other forms of fraud, including the romance, lottery, employment, and home slash vacation rental scams. And a bunch of other ones. Hmm. Uh, but in general, they uh, recruit unwitting money mules to move the money around and then uh, muddy up the trail so they can't be followed
0: to where they actually uh, – send and where the money ends up so that you can't get it back. I think it was just last roundup. I was complaining that batteries don't last long enough. Yes. Well, I think it was uh, the big – draw. Or, um,
1: uh CES. lesson learned at CES yeah, yeah. was that people don't want wearable technology they just want batteries that last longer.
0: Right. Apparently though I didn't know about this battery at Oxford.
1: Yeah, so Oxford University in the UK uh has this battery it's a dry pile battery so it's made of like pieces of metal it it doesn't have uh, like a liquid in it. Uh has been running for 175 years ringing this bell. What? Constantly. What? Yeah, so it, it's like a mechanical bell Like it has a little hammer that hits a bell. And it's powered by this battery, and it's been running for 175 years. Uh, the problem is they don't want to tear it apart to figure out how it works, because that would break it, and they, it would ruin the experiment of how long does this battery last. Yeah. Uh, but they're also apparently nobody knows how it works.
0: <laughs> I'm, they, they have a video of it right now, but I'm not exactly yeah. sure what it is I'm watching. Is there supposed to? Is there?
1: Well, see, there's Piles bells and there's a little hammer, really and it's ringing the bell. Battery that has been ringing since 1840.
0: Huh. All right, well, that's, that sounds like the battery I need in my laptop.
1: <laughs> yeah, because well, like, I remember uh, archaeologists had found a, some kind of battery-like thing made in, like, a clay pot or something in, in like, ancient Babylon or something. But, uh, yeah, so this one's been ringing this bell off this battery for 175 years. That's and, pretty neat. But they don't know what the battery consists of anymore, right? They, I guess it wasn't written down or it got lost or something. You know, it was 175 years ago. Um, and so they don't want to tear it apart to figure out how it works because that would break the experiment, uh, and you know they would like to keep going and find out how long the battery actually lasts.
0: Wow, huh? Well, maybe one day they'll take the take it apart, and uh, we can have the, we can share its secrets with our cell phones and our laptops. Yep. Alan, is there anything else we want to cover in today's episode of TechSnap? Snap? Uh, no, that's about it. Well, then there you go. That's episode 199, which means next week is episode 200. We'd love to have you join us live to celebrate yes. 200. JB JBLive.tv. We do the show 1 p.m. Pacific, which is – 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. Boom. You can also go to jblive.info for the audio-only version, which which is great when you're in the car or just sitting at your desk. Maybe you don't want to see our faces or maybe you have an incredible imagination and enjoy theater of the mind. jblive.info for the audio, jblive.tv for the live, or just download it after the fact on demand. We also have RSS feeds. Our RSS feeds make it so easy to get the show every single week when it's when it just comes out. You just it's like magic. We have it's like a tube from your device right to, right to TechSnap. So go grab one of those that way you don't miss episode 200 either. And then last but not least, you can still send in your episode 200 emails. Just go to the contact form and send them in to us. And one quick plug, you can also submit them to the subreddit techsnap.reddit.com. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. We'll see you right back here next week.